Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. We're bringing together leaders in the gaming industry to discuss industry passions, challenges, and ideas. I'm James, and I connect businesses with talented freelancers in the German market. Today, I'm joined by Chris, Carla, Kevin, and Christopher. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. I'd like to know who you are, what you do, and what your biggest tr- passion is currently. Chris, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, my name is Chris Skora. Um, I'm working for Jaeger here in Berlin, Germany. Uh, been there for about four years, uh, working up from an associate to a senior producer. Um, currently working on the Cycle Frontier, um, and I guess one of my passions. I, I, I kind of briefly went over this. I, I love gaming. Um, anything that connects me to a moment. So just films, books, art, anything of that nature. So. Working in the game industry lets me uh, get closer to those people. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's one of my passions. Great, thanks for that, Chris. Um, Christopher, would you like to sort of give an introduction to yourself now? Sure, will be a pleasure. Um, hi, I'm Christopher Gosser. I am a lead game designer at Decker Games Studio in Berlin. Um, it's a global remote company, so I'm working in an environment with a vast, diverse team. Um, it's definitely one of the big benefits. I myself um, have not directly entered the industry from a, let's say, traditional standpoint. I do have a master's degree in biochemistry and entered the industry by sheer luck, as so many of us have. And um, yeah, I'm working with Decker for two years now. I have my work myself up from a senior game designer to lead game designer and currently manage a team of um, eight designers. Perfect. Cheers for that, Christopher. And Kevin, would you like to give an introduction to yourself as well, please? Awesome. Thanks. Hi, I'm Kevin, and I'm the CTO of Freaks. We are a PC and console premium game studio from Hamburg in Germany. Small indie developer, small-ish indie developer. Uh, I've joined the company around five years ago, a bit longer than that, uh, when we were around nine to ten people. And for the past three years now, I'm active basically as the CTO of the company and helped the team grow uh, quite significantly. We're around 25 people now and I'm managing a team of, I believe, 12 engineers at the moment. So it's been a lot of fun seeing the team grow so much, especially over the course of the past year. And yeah, one of my passions at the moment, it's a bit hard to come up with just one thing, but recently I really got into miniature painting and tabletop. So that is a lot of fun. So I will name that. No, that sounds really cool. Sounds really interesting. Perfect. And Carla, would you like to introduce yourself? Okay. Hi. Hi, I'm Carla. Um, I've been in the games industry for about 10 years now. Started my professional career in museums and basically entered the games industry via the Computer Game Museum in Berlin. I helped setting it up in the current location and I also gave tours as a guide. Um, then I joined um, an indie festival for a few years while I was studying um, my master's degree and um, moved into my first yeah, games project um, with a small indie company. And uh, now I'm at Soft Games. Now I've been with Soft Games for about three years and um, started a project with them, launched the game in December 21 and have been running it since then. Uh, pretty success- successfully 
Um, we started with four people in the team and we're now 26. Um, yeah, my current passion is probably being outside, um, going on hikes, bike trips, and experiencing nature as well as travel. Oh, that's great. That sounds very interesting, all of you. Thank you very much for the introductions. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, the Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data, product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Now that we have established um, a context about each of you, um, let's move on to the topic of focus. Uh, you all have a question or a statement on navigating game development challenges as a leader. As usual, I'll, walk, uh, I'll work around the room uh, asking each of you to pose your question and the reason behind it. Uh, each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. Uh, we'll start with Christopher. Your question is, what are your approaches to establishing the hierarchy system uh, in order to ensure the acknowledgement of sovereignty in the, of departments? Uh, do you want to sort of give a bit of context behind this? Sure. Um, so basically, the origin of my question stems, of course, a little bit um, from my own background as a designer. Um, because very often in the past, like not even when I was in a lead position, but also when I was in the junior, regular or senior position, doesn't really matter. One of the things that I very often noticed, and this was not only true for game design, but also for artists when they're working on assets and so on, other departments really like, or pretty much everybody pretty much likes to contribute to creative processes. And very often that resulted in situations where people were trying to don't want to say over-contribute, but basically overstepping a little bit responsibilities and boundaries. And sometimes it was really hard to step down and say, yeah, that's very nice ideas or suggestions, but we are the ones who should make this call. And I, I'm really all for like collaboration. And I have currently in my teams, I have a little bit of the trouble that they are in situations where people from other departments are contributing beyond um, what is expected or beyond the responsibility that they have. Perfect. Thanks, Christopher. Um, Kevin, do you want to sort of leave with this one? Yeah, uh, I can try to take it away. Um, so first of all, thanks for the question. I think it's really interesting. Um, when I first read it, I basically, my first thought was like, oh, um, I got to read up on what the Rocky system is because I actually didn't know that uh, acronym. So when I looked it up, I realized yeah, that is something that we are not in that sense actively applying in, in the way that you see it, like, you know, textbook level in university or whatever. Um, but actually, of course, it's something that you do somewhat naturally. And um, the way that we do it, um, we mostly have a flat hierarchy in our company. And as I said in the intro, we are a rather small team of around 25 people. And for the majority of our time in the past couple of years, we've been even less around 15 to 18 maybe so um, we didn't have huge charts showing everybody's involvement and everybody's mapping according to uh, the rocky system or something like that 
But what we do have is essentially, of course, um, the the company management team, the ones in charge and running the company, and uh, the project managers or project owners on the different projects. And um, we have a joint meeting of the project managers and the company management uh, at least once a week, where we basically update each other on what is going on on these projects. So this kind of serves as the um, responsibility and accountability checklist on that part, right? The project owners or project managers often are the ones responsible for getting certain features shipped or done or delivered to our products. And uh, then we often have somebody like, let's say, a lead developer or a technical director, maybe an art lead or a producer on the project who is going to be accountable in the end to uh, make sure that all these expectations and goals are actually going to be met. And uh, since we also work in a Scrum-based manner most often in our projects, um, I also feel like a lot of this is already covered by the artifacts contained in that. So from a combination of us having that company management and production meeting, plus the regular Scrum meetings that we hold, uh, we also already have a quite natural assignment to these roles of being of having a responsible person an accountable person and so on and for uh, the the people that you usually have on your informed list and the consultation list and so on these kind of depend on a project by project basis for us because we often work with clients um, that kind of already gives us a nice list of okay those are the stakeholders that we need to inform and keep updated and in the loop about the current progress on the project. Um, oftentimes we're doing that specific part through uh, sprint report presentations and just showing or discussing the increment that was developed in the last sprint. Uh, sometimes, if possible, even showcasing a new build or new features, similar things like that. And uh, if you need specific people in our team to be consulted that are not assigned to a project, maybe you have a team of engineers working on the porting engagement but there is actually something that uh, requires input from technical art because, I don't know, maybe there is some unfortunate meshes way too big, can't really run on Switch. What do we do to size them down? Uh, can we have some availability from a technical artist? Uh, everybody always is free basically to consult people in the team for these topics or to schedule a meeting and discuss thoughts and bounce uh, topics and so on and so forth. Sometimes, of course, it requires coordination with uh, different project managers due to overlapping schedules or projects. But in general, you always have somebody uh, that you can consult for these kind of topics, even if they are not specifically mapped to that role. And to um, answer a bit of the thing, a couple of the questions that you outlined in um, your reasoning behind this question, I actually think it's quite interesting because um, I, I feel like it's a bit of a problem in the industry that we work on because a lot of people are just super passionate about what they work on and what they do. So they naturally want to involve themselves in much more than they possibly can or maybe should. And um, I know that it often leads to situations, um, and that's something that you discussed prior to the podcast as well in our questions, kind of like, how to prevent scope creep and those questions. So I figured it comes from that direction as well. Um, so yeah, basically having someone from a completely different department, for instance, in your case, going to the design department and say like, this would be a great idea to implement in our game. Uh, can we make it happen? And then you have the extra responsible person 
in the end say, you know, we can't because it's actually goal creep. We can't do it. We can't pull it off. We have to, don't not have the time and budget available for this. Um, that's something, of course, that is happening a lot and that you kind of just need to control and balance. I feel for us, it is a bit of a cultural topic as well. A lot of people just want to contribute a lot and uh, they are kind of used to being told great idea but we can't really do it at the moment or great idea we're going to address it at some point in the future potentially so when it comes to these more concrete things we try and make time for them in in the uh, budget sometime in the future but of course that always doesn't uh, doesn't always happen and once you work through the stuff that you need to work through you may have time to address these going forward and then you might see already you know, it's a feature that takes a week. We can implement it or we can't implement it. Yeah, perfect, Kevin. Uh, you got something to say about this, Christopher? Uh, yes, basically, I have a small follow-up question. So, as you said, you're working in a um, pretty small company with 25 people, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, one thing that I have experienced is that not only these situations are coming from completely different departments or different, different members of staff, I think the most trouble that I've seen different teams have with these kind of situations when someone um, that is a superior comes down to them and basically asks for these things. For example, in certain situations, we had business owners or even the CEO of a company step in and say like, hey, this is what I like, this is what I really enjoyed in the last game that I played. I want to see it in the game. Can we make it happen? And I feel that sometimes it's a little bit of a conflict of interest because it's really hard to say no to your <laughs> the highest boss, basically, right? And I just was curious if you have experienced something like this or similar. Kevin? Yeah, um, I I think I do a bit, but uh, of course I'm also in the fortunate position that I'm kind of my boss. Of course, I still have the CEO, the owner of the company uh, working above me, but at least when it comes to people in the engineering department, um, there's nobody uh, regulating my work directly or managing my work directly. Um, but still, of course, uh, from the past, that is something that uh, I definitely experienced. And I agree with you in general. You often have that coming also from people uh, that manage your work. And that, of course, is, as you said, a conflict of interest. What do you do now? Do you want to run the risk of putting them off and tell them, hey, this is a great idea, but we actually do not have time and budget for this. We already are running on a tight schedule. So uh, sorry, we can't do this. Or do you just want to say, yes, great idea. Let's jump right into it. And now uh, I'm going to turn back to the team and say, actually, we have a problem now. Um, and from my past experience, I think the best thing you can do is to be as open and transparent about this as possible. And I think I've been in a fortunate enough position that um, our company is quite receptive to these kind of things in general. So um, it really is just down to you making that step and making that decision and saying, hey, sorry, this doesn't work due to budget and time constraints. And depending on who you're talking to, of course, they may or may not have a better view and understanding of these things behind it. So as I said, in my case, I was fortunate enough to have a, uh, a partner or somebody else coming down to me with these requests where I can say, it's not going to work. Or if you really want to make it work, we have to cut on something else and you have to be aware that this might impact development, right? So um, taking a step back in these moments and really outlining the impact and the effect of what is happening, I think is the best that you can do. Thank you for that, Kevin. Uh, yeah, Carla, you got something to say? Okay. 
Okay, I have quite a few questions. So first one uh, goes to Chris and Kevin. I assume you're working um, in like a kind of a shared team or you're part of a shared resource and you have teams that you're contributing work to, um, which is a little bit of a different setup for me and I guess for Chris as well. Christopher. For me, the setup is a little bit different, being the producer of one game and um, running this game uh, in life operations at the moment. So I have my team and it's my responsibility to make decisions in this team. I have most of the resources available for, for me. I hired most of them. So um, I rarely work with shared resources. And therefore, it's quite easy to kind of manage all of this. But I agree, the mo when the moment comes and you get input from outside, uh, I usually act as the first point of contact to everyone else in the company. And so if I get feedback, I usually try to um, talk it through with this person, uh, look at our timeline. If it's someone from the uh, management or C-level, then uh, exactly what you said, Kevin, um, point out what impact this has on the team, on the product, on the timeline that we agreed on. Recently, we added a like a feature menu uh, that we uh, regularly take a look at with uh, management and then see if we want to make any changes or if they have changed their priorities uh, from the um, company management side. So that's how I deal with this. Feedback from inside the team is a little bit of a different story, I think, because especially in visual things and game design, people have a lot of opinions. Uh, so if designers or artists share their work in our Slack channels, sometimes there's a lot of discussions happening and a lot of input and feedback from team members that might not be relevant or, or important at that point. Um, so this can create confusion for, for artists, especially in my team. You get a lot of, they get a lot of feedback from their teammates and they want to be considerate, but then it gets confusing. We try to deal with this with opening up a feedback channel, like a separate feedback channel where people can give their feedback that's regularly reviewed by designers, by myself. And we um, usually create tickets out of a lot of this feedback because it's valuable feedback for, from the team. We also have brainstorming sessions, not as much as we would like to, but we try to try to make time. Oh, perfect. Thanks for that. Um, before we come to you again, Kevin, quickly, I'm just going to pop to Chris, uh, Chris Sakura. Um, have you got something to say there? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a, it's an interesting question. Also, uh, it's tomato, tomato, I guess, but, but we call it racy, not racky, uh, or whatever we're calling it. I think it's the same. We, we all know what it is. Uh, but. But yeah, the the fact that you were setting up this framework on top of you know asking for this autonomy, this sovereignty, this this kind of like shielding of of this feedback is 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 also interesting because I see those as uh, serving two different masters. Um, at least going to the the issue of like mandates from above, where let's say, oh, this is you know maybe a, a producer, executive producer, or maybe you know another stakeholder saw a movie over the weekend and has this crazy idea, comes in on Monday and tells your artists about it and now your artists have a confusion on whether that's you know something they're supposed to work on or not um i, f I feel like someone should be facilitating those requests and that everyone in the team has a, sh a sort of shared language so that they know that they're providing value towards the player at the end of the day instead of being like i have this really great idea we should put some aliens in the game when there's 
you know, it's like out of theme. It's it's just like not really something that is going to fit within what the what the confines of the game is. Um, just so the people who are putting this feedback forward are are still feeling like they're being heard, but they're actually just using uh, their time efficiently to actually, you know, potentially get their idea heard and actually actioned on. But um, yeah, in in my past, I've also worked at some marketing firms where like these kind of stakeholder tasks would happen in feedback rounds where, you know, we'd be deep into the third round, almost to the final one. And someone's like, I actually hate this color. We should change the whole website to blue. And it's like, sorry, you know, like you weren't at the beginning of this kind of conversation. This is the workflow that we have. Uh, this is the framework. Um you know, maybe the next time we'll be able to to do this, but for now, just just setting the expectation, I think, is really is really key, just so you don't disappoint those people. And uh, to what to what Kevin said, also with stakeholders, it's great too. Is just giving them options, like, okay, if you want us to prioritize this and this other thing that's also really important might fall off the table, which one do you think should be prioritized here? And they might be like, okay, well, let me step back. I think this is really key. I'll take back what I said. So you're always just kind of like throwing it back at them to have them think about their ask in the first place. Yeah, thanks for that, Christopher. Sorry, that's probably my fault for calling the Rocky system. Um, I might have started that one, but uh, I'll try and avoid that one now. Uh, perfect. Kevin, did you have something to say quickly? Yes. Um, so just to take a quick step back to what Carla said before um, about, you know, premature feedback for artists and designers. I totally get that. And we also have that um, or have had that in the past, especially um, we are doing our own productions and we're doing work for hire and outsourcing projects as well. So especially on our own productions, of course, we have a similar setup, similar consolidation. Um, and I think one of the things that helped us a bit with that, which I'm going to talk a bit about, uh, about a bit more in the upcoming question that Chris had as well, we introduced a, a show-and-tell meeting some years ago, which is basically just the team sitting together once a week where everybody sees a lot of work in process. So just completely unfinished work. And we just you know talk about these kind of things. And I kind of believe that now that you mentioned it, everybody's seeing it more often and on a more frequent manner kind of made everybody more receptive to seeing work in process and not giving so much premature feedback or at least providing it in a different manner because they better understand what the process looks like and then um i think i'm not entirely sure if that was a point from uh, chris or you carla sorry but uh you basically spoke about uh, game design feedback as well and being uh, a bit disruptive sometimes when it comes from within the team i think um just on a quick note here you know it kind of relates to play tests as well right also, when you have somebody like a C-level maybe coming down to your team and saying, this would be a great feature. I just played Zelda Tears of the Kingdom through the weekend, and it's amazing. We have to have nice physics systems now in all our games. Um, I kind of feel like it's similar to playtests in the sense that you can't really trust players with what they actually say. You just have to understand with what players actually want when they provide that feedback, because sometimes we're not as a human, the greatest that actually articulating what we really want, but just blurping out kind of like a brain fart instead. And that, of course, becomes diff difficult when it conflicts with project timeline and deadlines or budgets or whatever. Perfect. Uh, yeah, we'll quickly come to you, Chris, again. You got your hand up. No, I think it was me. I had a great idea oh, yeah, and then sorry. I lost it. 
But um, what I wanted to say is how I deal with uh, clear responsibilities, which is key, I think, in a team. So everybody should know what is my role, what is my responsibility. Then it's easy to kind of, you know, work together, give feedback, um, kind of give this feedback some kind of value inside this uh, this team. Um, so what we try to do is be as clear as possible with the roles. In some cases, it's super easy. For us, for example, we have in the QA team per sprint, we have a dedicated um, release master, we call them. So they're responsible for the release. Uh, we do weekly releases, by the way. So um, so they ha are handling everything, um, defining the version. First input, put input is from my side, and then they define the final version. They you know push the button. They maintain the release log and so on. Um, in the dev team, it's similar. We just started a new like setup of, of responsibilities with one um, dedicated build master per sprint, um, as well as a maintenance developer per sprint, because we realized we didn't spend enough time on maintaining the project, which is probably something that Kevin knows all too well, or probably everyone in this group. In other cases, like in the design and the art team, we just started this process and um, talked to everyone or set up meetings in small groups to look at their responsibilities and define roles. So everybody knows, okay, so this is my role here. I take this hat today. I'm going to do this and this and this. And tomorrow I'm going to add another hat maybe because sometimes you are, um, you, yeah, sorry. No, sort of like dual hat sort of thing. No, but it's more like if you know what you're responsible for, um, it's easy to know your role and your part in the project. So that's kind of what I'm trying to to get at in in this team that has been growing. Perfect. Yeah. No. Thank you, everyone, for your sort of like insights on that question. So what we'll do is we'll move on to the next question now, and this is uh, posed by Chris Sikora. Um So his question is: Your approaches to fostering collaboration. Uh, connection with cross-functional teams that have desperate backgrounds, compositions, or are not co-located. Do you want to give a bit of context behind this one? Yeah, sure. Um, and and uh, sorry, I was I, I wrote disparate, um, so it's just like they're they're not uh, comparable. You know, like maybe there's someone who's like a, uh, fresh out of school. There's someone who might be coming in with a with a, a biology master's degree. Uh, you know, someone from a museum, uh, background as well, you know, like how do you bring these unique and diverse perspectives together, uh, on a team that, you know, maybe they don't all know each other. They have different perspectives, especially with where they're coming from. Engineers and designers sometimes don't really see eye to eye unless they've kind of like somehow crossed the lines to work on, uh, each other's discipline. Um, same with artists as well. They see things very differently and work very differently. You know, it's, um, it's always interesting to to especially when you're building a new team, put these people together to build something really complicated. Um, you know, you as a as kind of like a, a leader are are responsible for for putting those people together and facilitating kind of like the goals and making sure that um, you know they're always focused on supporting each other. Um, but it's never really always easy. So yeah, I'm just kind of curious to toss it out into the group. What's uh, have you come across this yourself? And you know, what are your what are your uh, approaches? Love to hear it. I think it'd be good to come straight across to you, Christopher. Um, what's your view coming from a diverse background? Sure. Um, yeah. So I think it's a wonderful question because it's um, something that's getting more and more applicable the further we go along in the industry, especially now that home office and remote working is much more 
dominant than it was before. And one of the things that I found and realized throughout the years that is very often drawing a team together is um, when you're working on specific parts of the project that do require some um, creative input, may it be just the naming of something or the common language that you decide upon. If the team goes into this together and they are deciding upon something together, it's much more easier for them to become better acquainted with each other because they do use a common language. They do have a common agreement of what a new character is called or a new mechanic is called or something like this. So in the end, these are like, in my opinion, some of the low hanging, most low hanging fruits that I have identified so far because it always resulted in the team having not only a professional work relationship, also like a very um, friendly and also, um, how do you say it? They were very comfortable with each other because there were was a lot of more lightheartedness um, when it comes to the comes to these things. Like they were joking around and having fun ideas and were just exchanging things. And this is something that here at Deca we also do promote quite a lot. And it's very helpful and useful, especially considering that we have such a vast variety uh, variety of different backgrounds. So um, sometimes we do also have issues um, when it comes to these things because when you are working with an international team you sometimes have different working times, right? So the core working hours are different, but you also have complete clashes of cultures and things that are um, considered completely differently in different countries and cultures can often um, result in a clash. And what we're trying to do is educate the team together and work out things together and then work close together on things where we can identify, let's say the benefit of having fun together, so to speak. I mean, in the end we're making working in the games industry and one of our main goals is to create fun and enjoyment right so and we should be having fun and draw enjoyment from it while we're on the journey to do this thank you for that christopher yeah carla go for it i think that's a great point christopher um fun is really essential but you can't force it so that's kind of the challenge i think um always um but thank you chris for the question i think it's a great one and i've been thinking about this um since i started this project especially since we are working remotely. Um, part of my team, about half of them are based in Berlin, but we basically do not go to the office. It's um, on top of this, most of them are from different countries. So we have um, a little majority of Germans, but we have a lot more nationalities in the team or cultures. And that makes it sometimes, it makes it always interesting and sometimes maybe challenging. Um, but what Chris uh, Christopher said, I think is super important to create some kind of ownership in the team um, or of the product and to to also create the feeling of community of um, we're in this together without stressing too much. And what I mean with this is without crunching to meet deadlines all the time or at all, um, giving each other space to, um, to deal with um, crisis that we might have um, stress that we might have at home. And so that's also something that I experienced in, in my team and, and to give, give them space to kind of talk about it or take some time um, to, to work it out themselves. Um, what is very important to me in this is trust. And in my team, that comes first, I would say. If someone joins my team, they get 100% trust in the beginning, and then we'll see how it goes. But uh, usually it works quite well. And I think that's kind of uh, 
a key to yeah to make everyone participate and um in the project on top of that there's things like we have team lunches we do regular res- retrospectives we kind of uh, do um try to stay in contact we don't use private channels on slack we have as much as as much communication as possible publicly um, we use our daily space uh, a lot. So where we meet for our daily, we also jump in for calls um, quickly to discuss things. So communication is is very important as well. Uh, so thanks for that, Carla. We'll come straight across to you, Kevin. You had something to say. Yeah, um, I, I think same as the others, it's a wonderful question. I was actually thinking about something similar when James first reached out for the question. So uh, thank you for stealing that. And um, maybe regarding a bit what you said, Carla, I, I think you're absolutely right. You can't really force fun or you can't force people to do things together or something like that. But I feel like one of the responsibilities or one of the mechanisms that we have is we can provide as much room and space as possible for these. And um, when you asked that question, Chris, I was actually thinking about that. I believe we're doing that quite well at Freaks at the moment. And especially now with the team having grown quite a lot, you can feel that whole cultural aspect a lot more because it's much more present with 25 people than with 10 or with 15, of course. And um, yeah, just some of the things that we are doing, for instance, are um, yeah, basically these show and tell meetings that I mentioned before. So once a week, we just throw the whole team together for an hour and everybody prepares a slide of the topics that they worked on. It's a great room for people to just share what they have been doing, what they have been up to. Um, lots of gifts, venting, emotions, celebrating and so on. So basically just providing space to do these kind of things will naturally get people to share this because a lot of people actually want to share about their work and want to share what they have been doing. Uh, yeah, of course, we also do daily company-wide check-ins. I, I guess that is basically the no-brainer that almost everybody does. Um, we also do a lot of activities outside of work or provide space for that. We have anointed someone as the feel-good manager, basically, who is in charge of coming up with fun ideas and activities to do outside of events, uh, outside of work, which just facilitates people getting to know each other on a private level. With every new employee that we hire, we basically do coffee chats shortly after they join, so they actually get to match uh, meet with everybody one-on-one and just talk about life and anything really they want to. It doesn't need to be work-related, which also helps with what you guys said before, basically just getting to know each other on a more personal and private level, which then in turn helps facilitating all these other things. And one of the things that is also working extremely well for us is Discord, basically, which is our main communication tool. I know a lot of companies use something like Teams or Slack, but Discord is really great for us because it effectively mimics our office office structure and also helps participating people outside of uh, Hamburg or maybe even outside of Germany to yeah basically be part of daily office life. Uh, we have voice rooms for the different departments. We have focus rooms, fun rooms, and so on, where people just hang out and talk while they work which is pretty much like walking into the office kitchen and meeting somebody. Of course, it's not exactly the same feeling, but trying to get as many of these little aspects into the digital life as possible, I think is key to fostering that collaborative nature. Thanks for that, Kevin. Yeah, Chris, you've got uh, Christopher, sorry. Uh, you got something to say there. Um, yeah, I 
I like the I like the ideas um, that have been shared because some this also all of these things are also things that we're trying to do. And one of the things that I just remembered that one of my teams is doing, which I really love, is when they have a new member of team. Um, this is also they do it generally, but they do have some something that they call the coffee chat in the morning. So every time when they start work, they basically sit together in a meeting room where they just either chat with each other or quietly work next to each other and basically have an spa open space where they can communicate. And for someone who is new, that's most of the time the situation where they are introduced to the tools, to the workflows, or to the current tasks that have been assigned to them. And it's sometimes very helpful for them to feel like they're more included and not super isolated when they're working remotely. And one of the other things um, that we're also doing, what you just said, Kevin, is like having these show and tell meetings. We call it the weekly all hands or whatever you want to call it. I think a lot of companies are doing this. One of the issues that I have with these kind of things is if this is going beyond a certain size with the teams, um, probably for you with 25 people, that's probably working very well and people know each other. For us, sometimes it can be a little bit exhausting if a team of in total 70 people are trying to introduce what the department is currently doing. And we have, for example, I'm currently in um, as a game, as a lead designer working on f um, five different games. And that means I have an overview over five different products, but the people who are working on these products don't necessarily know what's going on in the other products. And somebody who, share, who shares something that's very exciting for them sometimes is basically just a little bit of hot air, right? They don't really care because they don't really see what the benefit is or what the big gain was. Um, but in these situations, we always try to make a point of celebrating the success of other teams in order to make sure that people understand that they have either accomplished something or that they feel like valued for what they're doing. Thank you for that, Christopher. Uh, we'll come to you, Carla, first, and then we'll come over to you, Kevin. Yeah, thank you. Um, Kevin, I had a question regarding the rooms because I haven't really tried it. Is it working for you? Like just people sitting in a room and quietly working and from time to time someone is speaking up and I, I imagine it like at the office, but is that how it's work? How it works for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's basically just like that. So um, we have different rooms. They are literally just called, you know, engineers, artists, designers, and so on. Where uh, if you wanted to, you could hang out in your department, basically. Uh, but what most people do actually is just hang out in the in a channel that we call fun focused work, and uh, that's just people who want to keep in touch, keep talking while they work. Right, so they have that natural conversation, as you mentioned, that you would get from an office situation, and some people like it more than others, of course. So again, it's it's something where you can't really force people to do this, but if you remind the team that this exists on an occasional basis, and then with a certain size of people involved, it will just happen naturally. Um, then this is just going to happen, and of course. If you were working in a smaller studio, maybe five to ten people, it would feel a bit awkward with just one person sitting in that room and just waiting for somebody to drop by. But as stupid as that sounds, even if you just see, oh, someone is in that room, I, I have somebody I'd like to talk to right now. And I'm, you know, before I've been in my tunnel and I've been working for the past two hours, you realize there is somebody that I can just go to and ask a couple of questions and then I can bugger off again. So people will do that. And I think just um, putting yourself in that position and providing that is something that is actually really helpful. Thanks for that, Kevin. Um, Chris Akura, um, how's that to sort of wrap up the question for you? 
Yeah, I love it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of what everyone's doing that that everyone's um, that I'm employing at at, at Jaeger as well. Um, I I think this is just such an interesting question for for a leader just to just to I guess um, uh, source ideas from 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 other people, you know, because everyone has like a different way of approaching it. But the the problem still remains, you know. How do you how do you keep these people motivated and and excited to work on games? Because games are supposed to be fun at the end of the day, so. You want to try and keep it lighthearted and support them where you can. So yeah, thanks for the uh, for the answers there, everyone. Thanks, Chris. Uh, perfect. That sort of like leads us on to the next question. And so next up, we've got Carla. Um, so your question is, how do you manage uh, in- increase in expectations and requirements from different sides when a project is growing, becoming more successful? Uh, for example, player support, frequent content releases, revenue expectations, continuum continuous marketing etc um do you want to give a bit of context behind this yeah so um, as you might have figured out this is the position i'm in at the moment um i'm trying to handle all of those different um requirements or um, yeah challenges from from all kinds of sides so we started the project quite small um now it has been live for one and a half years um, it's going quite well. Uh, we're expanding platforms. So we started off on Facebook. That's the main platform um, and soft games. Yeah. And uh, the game got quite big and the team got quite big. And we want to grow more, of course. We want to be more successful. But with growing come growing pains, maybe. So we noticed we haven't spent a lot of time maintaining you know, the code quality or uh, optimizing performance. That's one thing. So we want to spend time on this. On the other hand, we have a bunch of features that we still want to do, um, you know, to increase monetization, of course, or keep players in the game for longer. Um, We just hired someone a few months ago to actually do player support for our game. We didn't have a dedicated person until then. So that's, that's a new source of, hey, I have this, issue coming up from player side and this feedback, um, can you please handle this uh, on the dev team or, or uh, on the design side? Or And of course, I have uh, goals to meet for 2023. So this is uh, all kinds of things to, to uh, manage at the same time um, while keeping the team motivated and enjoying uh, their work. And I was wondering if uh, you've been in this situation and kind of have a have some tips because, uh, yeah, you all have uh, some experience here. Yeah. Um, Christopher, what comes to you? Um, yeah. So I, since I basically haven't done anything else apart from live games <laughs> in my career, um, I hopeful I, um, I'm hopeful I can give you a little bit of an insight. So one of the things that I can directly say from the start or tell you there is most games when they start and when, especially on the live ops side, um, pretty much true for almost all live games, they were never planned to be running for that long that they're running. And this is something that pretty much always comes to to bite you in the back when it happens. And I have, on all the games that I've worked on, it was pretty much always the case. Um, And some things, of course, I'm speaking a little bit more about from the design side, um, system design-wise, games were often neglected to be made future-proof. 
And this is not only on the design side, of course, where I have the most experience, but in other situations, we have this as well, as you said, like the tech depth that you build up, like the code structures or the resources management that the system that you have in the background running was never designed to be that huge, for example. And this is something that can come back and will be a problem. And one of the things that I've learned over the years is these kind of things, like all of the technical depth that you have and restrictions, there needs to be a dedicated time where you sit together with the team, discuss the impact, the size um, and the scope of fixing these issues. And if you then, we always do it by the um, pretty much so-called uh, t-shirt size um, approach. So we're going with like, what, how big is the impact? How much is the effort? And then go into either it's a, a small, a medium or an XL, whatever kind of size we want to uh, use there and discuss what kind of things we should do as first. So um, just as an example, um, on the one game that I worked in the past, RuneScape, um, while I was in the UK working for Jagex, um, they are still using the code language RuneScript, which is 20 years old by now. And this, you can imagine, comes with a whole bunch of um, issues. So the biggest issue that they have, um, public knowledge, so I can definitely share this, the limiter for integer values goes to the standard value of two point something billion and they cannot go beyond it because the language is not built for that like there's no way they can go over this so they have to do some very very tricky coding in order to fix this and the other thing is the coding language doesn't support decimals so you cannot have a half number you cannot do fractions and this is something that design wise is horrible to work with and i would always advise if you can refactor systems and they are feasible and it's manageable in a reasonable amount of time it should be done if you can't your team most of the time will find alternatives and they will find some ways around this and the longer a project grows um the more of these kind of situations you will have where you have to compete between do i fix an issue in the game or do i expand the game system and this is kind of where it is about weighing the value of what you're doing and for example as you stated in your question um the expectation from player side, um, if a game is running for a certain amount of time, you do have a player base most of the time that is beyond what the early game of a game is. And the question is, is it still valuable or feasible, for example, to fix issues that were in the early game that don't affect the current player base? And this is sometimes very hard to accept, but you will need to neglect some part of the community in some form or another. And you will sometimes need to make calls whether is the game supposed to be running this long or are we looking for new user acquisition do we want to reactivate users all of these things and in the end this is one of the toughest things to do in a life ops um, operation and there is no real i would say golden key for this because it really depends on the game it really depends on the performance and one thing where i would always advise consult the kpis that you have as much as you can in order to get a proper view of what step should be taken next for this yeah thanks for christopher we'll come across with two you chris Akura. Yeah, thanks. Um, this is actually a, a, a really interesting question because it, it tends to be um, something that, like, let's say, executive production is quite focused on. If they start to get some success, they'll want to really like focus on the content uh, treadmill, which is tough. Let's say if you have a seasonal game like the one that I'm working on, you only have so much time to basically fulfill the needs of you know a growing player base that's hungry for more content, but also you have this growing tugboat of tech debt like uh, Chris was uh, alluding on to. 
so it's like you have to find then strike that balance um so i i guess my 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 advice would always just make sure that the feasibility of development is always matching the growing ambition you know if there's some kind of feedback loop where you can always check to see hey we have this really amazing idea is it even possible does it play well with these other systems does it fit within this longer road term or longer roadmap that we have for where we want to take the game you know um always just kind of like check your gut with that because it's so easy to just like follow a thread and see that actually doesn't quite go in a successful route so i guess also what to what chris was saying just making sure your those feedback loops are checked against uh, any telemetry data that you have so those kpis things you're tracking um you know trying to track and see if if what you're doing is actually working and then you know adapting where you can um so yeah it's just i i get it if you have stakeholders that are like thinking very macro like oh man we can spend more money put put more uh butts and seats at this company you know like we could scale up you know just, just be like hold on let's take a step back and enjoy the moment of success but like not go too crazy and, and react to too suddenly yeah thanks for that chris uh we'll quickly come to you kevin and then just purely for time we'll have to move on to our last question um so yeah go for it kevin perfect yeah don't spoil it. i don't have too much to say on this because we're not actually working on lightbox games um but one funny analogy that i uh, realized once you were talking about the old question a bit more is that uh, kind of the growth that we see in the company is having similar issues right we uh, our company has been growing quite a lot especially in the past year and especially my team has been growing so one and a half year ago, I believe I had like three to five people in my team, and now I have 12, which relative to its size is quite a lot. So naturally, some of those structures and workflows behind all that have simply outgrown the size of the team. And that is a similar issue than what you described with the game suddenly having a lot of technical depth that was never planned for because you didn't think the game would be running for that long, and you didn't account it for being um, available to so many players and so on. So some of the things that, um, and they are kind of general purpose piece of advice, I apologize for that, but some of the things that helped me in the past couple of weeks and months is to kind of try and prioritize really, really hard and identify and spot the biggest bottleneck that you have and then address those first. And that really comes and ties in with the uh, points that Christopher and Chris said before, um, basically monitor your data, your player data and your KPIs and any other kind of metrics and data that you might have to kind of figure out what might be the easiest knob to turn to get as many people as possible happy and then do that first and next do the next big step that you can take and then obviously at some point there will be only small steps left but I guess it's going to take some time until you arrive at that point and uh, as long as you communicate transparently that whatever you're doing throughout that journey with your players with your team um, I think that is also something that is really important and uh, relevant in the process. Yeah, thank you for that, Kevin. Um, hopefully that answers sort of like your question there, Carla. Um, and we'll sort of come on to our last question now, and it's yours, Kevin, again. Uh, so what are the challenges? Um, what challenges have you actually faced and how do you approach uh, and solve them? So do you want to give a little bit of context? please? Yeah, sure. Um since the title of the podcast was basically navigating game development challenges as a leader, I uh, saw all your questions and thought, yeah, but what actual challenges, what actual problems are you seeing in your 
daily life, daily business operations, maybe seen years ago, maybe see right now. And of course, all your questions aimed at these challenges as, as well. But uh, I would be interested to hear some uh, war stories and so-called examples of what you would see in your daily business. Yeah, thanks for that, Kevin. Uh, Chris Akori, we'll come straight to you. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, I mean, I guess I guess I'm not going to give too many war stories, but it's something that I'm constantly uh, struggling with, which is a kind of like a work-life balance in the sense that it's more of like a work-life integration. Uh, because I love games, it's passion that I consume outside of work. So I tend to sometimes work a little bit longer than I really should. Um, and with scaling responsibilities, like, um, what I'm doing through my core hours is usually managing the team. So there's not a lot of time for headspace to like really think into the future upstream to like fix problems that we see coming downstream. So I end up working overtime. Um, Something that has helped me quite a bit is uh, uh, is delegation, um, and also like setting boundaries for myself and, and and putting white space in my calendar so I can have that 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 headspace time. Um, I mean, it's still a struggle. Obviously, I, I don't get it perfect all the time, but uh, you know, bringing other people into help solve those issues with me with the the de delegation like serves to uh, different you know, bastards in a way. It's like helping that person grow, but also helping me kind of like focus on other things as well. Um, so it's really like this, this push and pull with this, this thing that I'd love so much that, that, you know, over time is just, uh, slowly killing me, but also helping me grow. So yeah, game development. It's great. That's what we all came here to do. Right. <laughs> love it. Oh, thanks for that, Chris. Uh, we'll come straight across to you, Christopher. Um, yeah. So there are of course several things. So, um, De definitely share what Chris said, um, struggling with the balance of certain things. And I think one of the biggest issues that I had in the beginning was also delegation. Being able to delegate is something that needs to be overcome because at some point you need to realize even if you really like doing certain tasks, you shouldn't be doing them because they're not part of your responsibility anymore. And especially when you're stepping up to a leadership position. And um, one of the other things that I have realized, probably a little bit unique to my position working on um, live operation games is every time I was switching companies or products, I was working on designs that I have no way of verifying what the original design intention was. I don't know what the original designer was doing or why they were doing things. And um, my personal specialization in design, I would say, is heavily catered towards system design. So I'm working a lot with Excel, Google Sheets, and all of this stuff. So mathematics, super, um, super nukes. And... The biggest issue that I have is sometimes there are situations where I'm working on like all the balancings or all the systems or economies that somebody has designed and there are no formulas. Like there's no documentation, there were no formulas and they're all hard values. And that's something that I've encountered so many times and it's always something that is extremely difficult to navigate around because sometimes they might have had an idea why they were doing things. Um, at the time now, so after five to uh, six years, I kind of got into a point where I can identify most of these things. But in the beginning, I was definitely having a lot of trouble with understanding why certain things were done certain ways, when in my opinion or in the opinion of the team could have done me very differently. And one thing that I started to learn and realize now is when I'm looking at um, balancing graphs, I sometimes can identify either when a game was expanded beyond its original intended lifetime, or I can identify when a different designer joined the team. 
And that's something that's sometimes very fun to do because it's like you can see how the approach changed throughout the year. And one of the biggest things um, I did, for example, last year was in one of the games I'm working on, it's Gods and Glory. We did a huge rebalancing of all the buildings that you can do. It's kind of a city building strategy game. And the original design intention was to have a kind of exponential growth. At some point, they realized exponential growth is unsustainable because numbers get completely out of hand. So they changed the graph to a linear one. And we were like, okay, that's not sustainable if we want to expand the system and we need to change a lot of things. And we did. And there was something where I was like, it is a big hurdle and I can understand why it's sometimes very messy to work on these life ops games. Because almost a little bit related to your question, Carla, because that's something I can promise you if you don't build systems future-proof or in a way that you do them not for yourself but for others, they will become a problem in the future. Thanks for that, Christopher. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll come to you now then, Carla. Um, yeah. Yes, uh, thanks. Thanks for the question and um, thank you for the insight as well, uh, Chris, again. With the systems, I'll take this with me. Um, we have one in the making regarding deals that might be fun. Um, yeah, so challenges. Uh, there have been a lot. Uh, I think the biggest one for all of us might have been uh, COVID in the last years. So I still want to mention this. Um, yeah, I started this project remotely. I started at a new company remotely. Uh, so that was one challenge to get to know people, to get to know um, the your process, the workflow, the expectations inside a company when you join um, remotely. That's the first. The further we got into the game production, I noticed that I had to step away from the details a little bit. So in the beginning, I was super close to everything, the the universe we created. So it's a narrative-based decoration game uh, with a card core game. Um, and so basically creating a world is a lot of fun. But if you have to manage a team at the same time, you have to take a step back at some point. So that was one challenge for me to do this and to enable my team to also work independently uh, for myself. What really helped me with, with this was finding a partner and a very good design lead. And uh, that's very valuable for me as a producer to have them as a, as a sidekick, as a trusted person inside the team where we can discuss the vision, the product, uh, where it will go, uh, what they think it will uh, need in the next uh, months and years. So that's been very valuable to have uh, somewhat of a, a bouncing partner when it comes to the product vision. Um, that was that was also very helpful. There's more. Uh, there's a long list, to be honest, Kevin. Good question. Uh, we had team members affected by war. So uh, that was one big, big challenge last year. Um, he's still stuck in Ukraine, uh, which is difficult for the team. Um, it became normal uh, at some point, which is also uh, strange in so many ways. We also have team members in Russia. So that's a challenge in itself to have people on kind of both sides all over the world, everybody kind of affected by this war in some way or another. So that's that's the short list of the challenges from my side. Thank you for that, Carla. And I think it's only fair, Kevin, that we uh, we actually ask your challenges. So do you want to give us a bit about that? Thank you. Yeah, um, definitely. And I actually um, do also uh, respect the time a bit. 
were limited to one. And I actually have made a note on something similar, as you mentioned before, was actually one of the first challenges I was confronted with when I became CTO of Freaks. And that was the transition to remote work uh, all of a sudden when the global pandemic broke out. So that was a really, really interesting one for me to kind of figure out and solve. And of course, of course, it was a somewhat natural transition because we are all working in a digital industry and we're working on our PCs and our workstations anyway. So uh, it's not like you have to reinvent the wheel, but still um, the whole process of moving everybody out of office because we were a fully, completely uh, in-office company. We didn't have anybody working remotely. Uh, there were a lot of interesting technical challenges and, of course, also HR challenges all along the way. And I don't think, and that's one of the interesting uh, parts about this, uh, it never really goes away with big changes like this. Of course, you get better at um, addressing the problems that you have and solving them. But, um, yeah, kind of, Kind of like Carlos kind of said, they, there might be popping, uh, there might be new things popping up over time, uh, maybe even new situations that change the the playground, like suddenly the war breaking out in uh, Ukraine, and that again adds a whole new level of layer of complexity to the issue that you already have, and then you have to deal with that new issue, but it also ties in with the old one, and there are implications maybe to your running pro uh, productions and so on and so forth. So um, yeah, that remote work transition was a really interesting one for me to begin with, because uh, basically it was like, yeah, you're CTO now, oh shit, there's a global pandemic, what can we do? And then we had to figure out all the steps of how to get everybody online, how to get our death kits and our uh, workstations accessed remotely or uh, get them two people working in their home office. Um, and of course, also manage, you know, everything HR relating because of course, now everybody is sitting at home working at the desks and not in constant exchange with each other anymore. Um, things like game design that you never uh, thought about become much more challenging and difficult. And of course, uh, some of these mechanisms that we put in place definitely helped improve the situation. And I think by now, everybody kind of got the hang of that situation. But I think everybody also knows uh, moments of their time during the pandemic that uh, were much more difficult than others, where they felt like more alone, maybe, and realized, okay, at the moment, it's a bit more challenging to be at my home office, not working with the team in person, and so on and so forth. So navigating that whole space, not just from a technical standpoint, but also from a human perspective, um, was and still is really interesting. And I think we have good mechanisms in place for it right now. But yeah, as I said, it's not like this ever stops. And uh, as Carla also asked, um, some of these things still work. You know, like the, the Discord office structure that we have, amazing. Um, is super good for us, but others, they might just outgrow the size, as Christopher mentioned. Now we have a show and tell meeting that is working wonderfully well with 25 people. But what happens when we are 30 or 40, maybe we have to reinvent the wheel again and come up with something new. So it never gets boring. Yeah. Thank you for that. You're right there. It never does get boring. There's always something that comes around the corner and changes everything again. Perfect. Yeah. So before we end the podcast, uh, I'd like to say thank you to all our guests for sharing their thoughts. Um, today we've had Chris, Carla, Kevin, and Christopher. Um, if you wish to participate in a future podcast or would like to discuss how we could help you find the next perfect addition for your team, uh, please connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, again, thank you to everyone for joining us on the uh, podcast and I hope 
everybody who listens will join us again as well in the future. Thank you.